Hi, I'm Emmy Award-winning TV reporter Mara Schiavocampo, joined by Pulitzer Prize winner Wesley Lowry and former senior magazine editor Keith Reed. This week, we're joined by our girl Erin Haynes, editor-at-large for the 19th and MSNBC contributor. Today on Run Tell This, does the media spend too much time focusing on black men who voted for Trump? Plus, what happens now that the president is refusing to concede? Will he be a candidate in 2024? Our reactions to the election and what's to come. We have a, an award winner in our midst. Award-winning journalist. She happens to be the 2020 Rand Jarrett Medal for Journalistic Excellence recipient. The one and only. E. Marvelous. <laughs> Welcome, Erin. What up, though? Who let me in here? <laughs> Who did let you in here? Go. Security? Whatever, I was invited. I don't know. Congratulations. By whom? By whom? We got to lock down our, our, our Zoom security situation. Yeah, she won them interlopers. Right, I'm a, I'm a Zoom troll. Actually, this is not, I'm not actually a legitimate host. Uh, thank you, Mara. I'm super excited and and very honored. You know, uh, you know, we love uh, Vernon Jarrett, uh, founder of an ABJ, mentor to many, and a trailblazer. And so to be getting this award in his name from uh, you know Morgan State University, shout out to Morgan State. Uh, it, it's a big deal. It feels like a big deal, and uh, for coverage about the pandemic and, and the black women in particular who have been impacted in the poorest big city in America, it feels very meaningful. So I am super thrilled uh, about that, although the topic is is not something any of us should be happy about because the pandemic is raging and everything is terrible and we're never getting outside again. Right. Well, there's all that. But we should focus on the positive, which Yay. is your recognition. It is a big deal and it is fantastic work. And we are so, so proud of you. Congratulations. For First of all, I thought that was a positive because she don't need to be loud out. First of okay. all, <laughs> even when the pandemic is over, I should I should just remain on lockdown. Yeah, keep her in quarantine. Facts. I, I do need to be quarantined from you two uh, in particular. So I will be continuing to quarantine from both of you regardless of when the pandemic is over. I understand. Truth hurts. There is no it's vaccine painful. for Keith Reed people. No vaccine. Thing. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to go verbal sparring with Aaron, Keith, because I don't know if that's a winning. Do you know how many rounds that fight has already gonna, been going it, on? Correct. I know, it's been going on for about 15 <laughs> years. Years. Right. Right. Fast. Right. right. Um, Wes, before you came on, we were reminiscing about your student rep days. Oh, geez. That's, Hopefully you know. there were no pictures involved. Whoa, no. whoa. We may have to dig some up. Look, Got to look in the archives. May have to. Uh, back when I was just a child and I was bored with all of you, I had these big crushes on Mara and Aaron. And now that I'm an adult, I get to host, I get to be on a podcast with them. So it's like all my dreams came true. <laughs> now that you're a grown ass man, you're like, what the hell was I thinking? Yeah, Those I, bitches are crazy. What he, what he, what he really said was, I grew up and came to my senses. That's what wow, he really said. wow, no, no. I mean, it's. I don't know what you're talking about. Of course, Mara and I look exactly the same. So, I mean, you know, oh, yeah. I understand. No, no we, we don't, don't age. age. I don't know her. No. Okay, so we have very serious business to talk about. So I do really want to talk about the president and how he's about to get dragged, you know, uh, from the White House because he refuses to leave. But before that, I, I would love to revisit the election and the results of the election because last time we spoke, I think we were kind of experiencing this red mirage. I remember that me and Melissa Harris-Perry, who was our guest host last week, we were feeling really, really down because what we were seeing in the election results indicated that Biden was most likely going to win, but we were seeing this higher than expected support for President Trump. And I think one of the things that we didn't fully take into account 
was the overwhelming number of mail-in ballots that were going to go for Biden. So things look very different today than they did a week ago. Still closer than I think a lot of people thought. Polls were still way, way off. But I started to feel like, okay, maybe this country doesn't hate black people quite as much as I thought they did. Aaron, we spoke and, you know, we were talking about how meaningful it was to see a black woman heading to the White House. What was your reaction when the race was finally called? You know, I mean, I think regardless of your politics, like this country has hit a milestone with uh, Kamala Harris being the first woman, first woman of color that is going to be the second most powerful person in the country. It's like, even though I knew that, that, you know, obviously with her historic nomination, that that was a possibility, like when it actually happened, it was just kind of like, holy shit, like this is real. Like, the ceiling has been broken. And, and this is something that is actually about to happen. Like we are going to have to say, Madam Vice President, for the next four years and see this woman governing, um, you know, at the highest level that, that any woman has ever governed in our history. Like the American people will literally be looking at something that they've never seen before. And I just, uh, you know, I just think that that has to be acknowledged as remarkable. Was there a moment in, in her speech that really touched you? You know, she is a trailblazer. I could not help but think about uh, how that kind of paralleled my own year covering this election, right? I mean, literally helped to start a newsroom. Like we were trailblazing and trying to change the narrative around women in politics, around the concept of electability, right? Um, you know, just knowing how few black women are covering um, politics at this level in, in our industry. Like I thought about all of that. I mean, she talked about her mom. That made me think about like my mom, who I've not seen, by the way, since March. Please hurry up, vaccine. Um, but I mean, she's somebody who took me with her to the polls. And she's somebody who, you know, took me to our precinct three days after I turned 18 so that I could register to vote, right? So like the importance of, I was thinking about just Black women and their role in this democracy, even before we had access to the franchise. Uh, you know, she touched on the centennial of suffrage. She talked about the 55th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act. I'm from Atlanta. She, her opening words were about Congressman John Lewis. Congressman John Lewis, before his passing, wrote, democracy is not a state, it is an act. There was just a lot of symbolism on the stage that night. I mean, she was literally wearing suffrage white. She had her sorority pearls on. Like, it just felt like um, there was a lot that resonated, I think, with a lot of Americans who think about her as the future of the country, but but just, you know, her being a pioneer um, and the pioneering year that I feel like I've had, even at this point in my career, like I'm certainly not new to journalism or, or political journalism, but um, yeah, I mean, it just made me reflect on the, the, the overall journey of, of what um, this election has, has meant for, for her, but also for me. Keith, Mr. Pennsylvania, your state was the clincher. Man, um, so so a couple of things in in what Aaron just said, and 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 what you talked about, Mara. First of all, Aaron ended with talking about her her year uh, and the trailblazing that that she's done. And I know we don't like the navel gaze here, but can we give Aaron her flowers right we now? We need to give Aaron. Like, can we all can we give Aaron flowers. her flowers? Like you are you are just extra dope what you what you're doing and launching this newsroom and everything that that we personally know about your journey and where you've come from to get to where you are um every single bit of it is deserved 
And like, and we, and you actually came up in an earlier show when we talked about who we would want to moderate debates. And I was like, oh, she retweeted <laughs> it. She retweeted. You didn't see that. She said, good morning to Keith Reed only. I think that was, I was shocked. I couldn't, I couldn't believe that. I was like, is it, yeah, you looking for a check or where's this? Where's yeah, this I voted against you. Just pay the record state. But... Right, I mean, blocked, somebody had, blocked, somebody had muted. to, Got but it. we, but we, we really need to give you your flowers, but, but to Pennsylvania. So Pennsylvania is weird, right? You saw Allegheny County, Pittsburgh voted 80% for Joe Biden. Eight in every 10 voters in, in the city of Pittsburgh voted for Joe Biden. Every county adjacent that touches, a, that borders Allegheny County was bright red. So that's, so that's Western Pennsylvania and then Eastern Pennsylvania down in the corner. So, so Pennsylvania is sort of, sort of three places. Um, I, that that makes it complex, right? So I'm from Atlanta, as most people probably know, because I say it every chance I get. But, uh, you know, I was somebody who was used to early voting before I moved to Philly. Um, you know, they, they have early voting in Atlanta for a good month. And when I moved mm -hmm. to, um, to Philly and found out that you could only vote on election day in Pennsylvania, yep. I was just like, mm -hmm. what does that mean? Mm -hmm. uh, and so for this year, for this to be the first year that people could cast their ballot early, um, like, that process was was more than a notion for this state's board of elections and you know so for people who were just like why you know what's going on in pennsylvania why haven't they finished counting yet like they've never done this before well i think building on what aaron was saying i think it's going to be really interesting to see how much of the early voting and mail-in voting infrastructure remains even in post-pandemic elections like once you've done something once and figured out how to do it how many of these states are going to continue to allow the option? And so might there be an expansion of access to the polls moving forward? Because states that previously wouldn't have done early voting, wouldn't have done mail-in voting, now said, well, all right, I mean, we did it that time. It worked all right. We figured out the infrastructure. You know, the election was, you know, it was, it was really, it was interesting, right? The more I think about it, and I've been kind of trying to, once we got through the race being called for Biden, I've been trying to, like, zone out a little bit, get some work done. <laughs> like, but I, I think that it does underscore the, the extent to which we're just still living in two different countries, two different mm -hmm. worlds, the mm -hmm. depths of uh, the splits, some of the poor assumptions that are made by the prognosticators of the media about certain states, certain parts of the electorate, where to, uh, you know, where to focus information. You know, what's also interesting is that I, you know, for all of the money and time being spent covering these elections um, and by hardworking journalists, I'm, I'm still always so struck by how many stories, at least at the national level, still get overlooked, right? So for today, GQ dropped a piece uh, on Doug Jones in Alabama, and they had been with him on election night, kind of looking at, like, this was this resistance hero, what happened, right? You know, what was the... Um, and it was interesting because, and I'm sure that there are local journalists who, who've been all over this, but I hadn't seen anything smart from the Times, from the Post, from a CNN about look, looking at Doug Jones's race. I, yeah. I would love to read a piece with Mike Epsi in Mississippi, who came as close as any black person has ever gotten to becoming the senator in Mississippi. That's an interesting story. Even if he gets blown out, that's an interesting story, right? And a lot of times there are kind of these down ballot Look, Montana, where the Democrats came as close as a lot of these other swing states, um, right? I, I would love to go read an autopsy of what exactly happened and what mm. the issues were at play there. Or why people drank the Kool-Aid on Jamie Harrison. Exactly. Who, who 
actually didn't stand a chance from nope. the final polls. <laughs> ton of money, but that money did not translate into votes. You know, and so I, I'm just really interested in that. You know, and I think sometimes, you know, it's unquestionably we've seen like retraction of the media. There are fewer journalists locally doing work. But to be clear, a presidential election year, there are thousands of political journalists doing there are thousands of people out here filing articles, writing stories. And I think so often we're doing the same two or three over and over and over again that a bunch of stories, a bunch of unique angles don't necessarily get told. And so I'm sitting here like, do I want to read the same story again? Right. Well, I'll, I'll beg you for something different, for something that tells me something about the electorate. There's something that. And so I'm kind of in this spot still where I'm just trying to think about you know, what can we learn from this moment? Because there's also the mistake that we make all the time of like overcorrecting, like we overlearn a lesson. Well, what do you think of the things that we're missing right now? Like, what are the stories that you would like to know more about right now in so, this moment? Uh, I think a lot of those down ballot Senate races that I just don't, you know, for example, a lot of these states where we've seen a lot of coverage in the last few years on Georgia and Texas and the efforts to turn Georgia and Texas blue, right? A lot of good journalism there. Fascinating conversations, clearly kind of in the trend, and that and that conversation's happening, right? I I love to read pieces of you know, I love to read a piece from Kentucky where they just got blown out trying to trying to handle McConnell, um, and and what and, and Kentucky wasn't always a red state; it used to be a Union blue state, right? And so what happened? You know, like looking back, that we just had elections held all the way across the country, all these different races. Oregon just decriminalized all drugs. Mm-hmm. What's right. the implementation of that look like? <laughs> what does it, how does it, I know nothing about it. I've read zero pieces, zero segments, right? Like, I'm not saying that that should be the only thing on the news, but it's like, if we got 24 hours. But that is actually such a fascinating reversal of a decades long policy, which was the war on drugs. And now basically drugs is declaring victory in Oregon. They're like, we won, thank you very much, right? So like we're talking about since the Reagan era, it's before that. I think it was Nixon who declared the war on so, drugs. So give me like 2,000 words. Right? Like just right. one article to read about, you know, I'm sure there were some fascinating mayor's races that I don't even know about. I'm sure there were some fascinating congressional. I want to know about Connor Lamb in Pennsylvania, who was the, the darling of Nancy Pelosi. During his speech over the weekend, Biden gave a very specific shout out to black voters. Yeah. It mm-hmm. wasn't just like, let me let me lump them in with all of my supporters. It was a specific mm-hmm. shout out. More mm-hmm. than once. More than once. A new moment where I was like, oh, he's talking about black. Oh, he's talking about black people again. Oh, then he's mm-hmm. banging on the podium talking about black people. He's banging on the podium talking about <laughs> what black voters did for him. Especially those moments. And especially for those moments where this campaign was at its lowest ebb. The African-American community stood up again for me. I mean, that's a very, very, very strong message in saying, I recognize the role that you played in getting me here, whether it was your role in the primaries, whether it was your role now in the general election, I recognize the black community's unique contribution to getting me here. So now the question is, what does the black community want from him? What are we asking for in return? Uh, You know, I think what, uh, at least the black women, especially voters that I talk to, and make no mistake, eight in 10 black men also voted for Joe Biden, so we don't want to discount. 
Okay, but the but the but the numbers were of of Trump supporters and black men were higher than they were in 2016. That's a whole other conversation. We're going to get to we're going to get to his increased Let's support with, with black men and black women, which was which was it, which was notable, but I mean, uh, you know, Joe Biden is somebody who, you know, in half a century in in political life, uh most of his political career has been uh, you know, due to black voters, right? I mean, Delaware is the eighth most populous state for black people in this country, which not everybody is aware of, right? So he has been dependent and he has been campaigning to black voters for a long time. And so, um, you know, I wrote about that last year. I went to Wilmington and talked to folks in that community and, and they said what, you know, the narrative ended up being uh, this cycle was that that we know Joe Biden and we feel like he knows us because he's used to talking to black people, right? Mm -hmm. So when he gets up on that stage on Saturday and credits black folks, uh, you know, he understands how he got here and he is publicly acknowledging that. Now, and, and I do think that, that black folks are expecting that to translate into policy during the campaign. What I heard from them over and over again was like, look, you're not just gonna value us for our output, you're gonna value us for our input. Like we want a seat and a voice at the table and we expect to have that, right? So, um, you know, I think you are going to see a diverse administration with a lot of uh, black representation uh, that is going to push policies that are related to our lived experience. Right. He's talking about criminal justice reform. He's he's mentioning the LGBTQ uh, community, which, of course, is intersectional around race and gender. He's, uh, you know, talking about the racial disparities around this pandemic. Uh, you know, so I, I think, um, you know, black folks are expecting him to govern with them in mind, uh, especially because he has a partner uh, in, in the White House who was a black woman. But we also know, Aaron, that governing, that, that the campaign posture and even the celebratory posture and the, and the thank you posture after you've won an election are very different than governing. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. And, 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 that, that, and, and that's and, why it's on the voters to hold him accountable when he is in office. Right and there. they have to, they have to was, translate, like, like for those who are kind of coming to civic engagement and understanding mm -hmm. that this is on a continuum. Okay, so you, phase one was voting, right? Like the, mm -hmm. black folks were focused on getting Trump out of here. That was their number one priority. Mo most of them said this was an existential election for them, right? So that's phase one, he's gone, right? Now, black folks are like, all right, well, you got to keep going now. Like, like we said, we marched this summer. We said systemic change and not like incremental, but like an overhaul of systems is what is required now. So he will be pushed to do that, um, I think, um, by the folks who worked to put him in this position. So how do we explain the 19, 18 percent of black men who voted for Trump? So I think that's a fantastic transition to what Aaron was just talking about, right? Um, let's, let's, let's start with this because I, because I think Aaron brought it up a little bit earlier. We, we keep, there's, there's a couple of things that I think are wrong with that, with, with spout, with, with quoting that number absent context. Number one, when you say there were 19% of black men who voted, who voted for Trump this time around, that's based on exit polling. Exit polling tends to be far less reliable than other traditional studies post, post election, Right. And in this election, they're going to be even more, even even less reliable because what? Because oh, so well, let's say it's the same as 2016. Let's say it didn't go up at all. How do you explain that? I think I think you explained it by looking by looking at historical data. Historical data tells you that that there's been somewhere in the in the low in the high one to, to low to high one to low two digit 
uh, support uh, of African Americans, uh, black men in particular, of Republican candidates. I don't think it's it's but that this it's candidate. That, it's not that much of an aberration. Here's what I would say though on this. You know, the complaint that I heard from black male voters was that um, the Biden campaign was not, they were so focused on black women that the message for black men just didn't feel like it was there and they felt- It's ego, it's ego, it's Ice Cube. Oh, they didn't invite me to that's, a one-on-one meeting. They invited no, we, me to a meeting with 12 we, other we entertainers, so before. I'm not going. We talked about this We disagreed on we it before. To, and, and, we, and that's okay, and we can continue to disagree on it, but we, we, we have to stop saying, right? I don't agree with with Ice Cube. I damn sure don't agree with Lil Wayne. I don't agree. <laughs> Do I don't agree. Do you know what his with, position like, was? Like, no, we don't. We don't. That's why I don't agree with it because it's hard to, to agree with something that don't make no damn sense. But what I am saying is that there is validity to what Aaron has has said about we've you've in it for any group of people for any constituency. You've got to speak directly to that constituency. What did we say about Hillary Clinton after the, at the end of the last election? What was her what was her major mistake? She didn't spend any time in Michigan and Wisconsin, right? And Michigan and Wisconsin ended up flipping. You didn't go and talk directly to the voters who you needed to have your back based on geography to win to win that election, right? Okay. This election cycle, African American women undoubtedly undoubtedly were the most important voting block in this particular election cycle. Nobody in their right mind would or should argue with that. However, however, African-American men were also a very important voting block in this election. And many black and right behind black women, African-American men voted for Joe Biden in greater numbers and in greater percentages than any other voting block by gender and race, except for African-American women. But if you talk to black men, they will tell you, not all of us, but many of us will tell you, I'm doing this because Trump has to go. Not I'm doing this because I feel Joe Biden is addressing what my issues are. And that's important. You have to speak to constituencies that you expect to support you. So when you see an erosion of support among a voting block that is continually supported a particular party, you cannot just write that off and say, hey, like we're telling that same story over and over again in journalism circles. I can't tell you the number of times on Sunday morning talk shows and on and, 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 and on, you know, on, on news websites and news organizations over the last week that I've heard people talking, talking about how Democratic Party really has to figure out some kind of way to address these disaffected white, white voters. The Democratic Party, even even though black voters came out in, in droves for Joe Biden, the Democratic Party still really has got to find some kind of way to keep all of these disaffected white voters, these people in Pennsylvania, from, from leaving the party for good. We've got to figure out a way to keep the upper mid, Midwest in, in, in our column, so on and so forth. But... When a couple of black men, by a few percentage points, do the same thing that white folks have done in much larger numbers than black men, we say, oh man, black men are trash. They just did, they, they didn't vote the right way. We got to ignore that. Come on, man. It can't well, be both. I never said they were trash. You it know, can't, it can't be both. It can't be both. It's got, there's got to be some realization and some, and, 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 and some actualization of the validity that African American men have very specific policy needs that are not being talked about to the satisfaction of a great number of African-American male 
voters. It doesn't make it right when you when you throw, you know, the the, the ice cubes and the little wanes and, and all of those distractions into the conversation. But in the mean, there are policy issues. There are quality of life issues. There are economic issues that are affecting African-American men that they don't feel the Democratic Party is addressing and they don't feel the Republican Party is addressing. Somebody needs to speak to that. And if we're going to have a conversation about why there's this erosion by a few percentage points either way of African-American male support for the Democratic Party, that conversation has to be a part of it. It just has to be. You know, Biden support among African-American men conversation is, in fact, I think one of the most overprobed angles in media discussion. Uh, and the reason I say that is one in 10 Americans don't believe the moon landing happened. We don't spend very much time talking about that one in 10. Why? Because we kind of accept that this is an inconsequential set of people who we could pull our hair out for years trying to figure out what's wrong with them and why do they think this, and it would be a massive waste of our time, right? That as someone whose job it is to go and talk to people, one of the things you learn when you spend time with the electorate is that the electric's all a little crazy. It doesn't all fit into these little molds and people thinking things are right. And so one in 10, no, that's nothing. That doesn't mean anything. There's a completely inconsequential number and percent of people because we got one in 10, you can convince one in 10 people of literally anything, no matter what it was <laughs> in the entire world, right? And so then even when you're talking about 16%, all right, well, that's still, that's still <laughs> between one and two and 10, right? And, but beyond that, what I'll also say is there was, I, I do think the president did a solid job of playing into a specific narrative. And, mm -hmm. and I don't even want to just credit the president, but I also, but I do think, because I do think there's a legitimate segment of black men who were never going to vote for the author of the crime bill, ever, under any circumstance. And, and, I, and I don't think that's an invalid political position for them to take. Uh, that you have a generation of people who've grown up with their fathers incarcerated, their brothers and their cousins incarcerated, who for them, the symbolism of the crime bill means something very, very specific. And, and, it, and so when the candidate to run is the guy who they called it the Biden bill because he authored it and was championing it, is it shocking to me that some percentage of people would say, no, I don't forgive that guy. And that's not to suggest that Trump is some great reformer, but he can't say, I did pass a thing. I have talked about this aggressively. I have, right? There is a world where with the way politics gets simplified as it, as it flows out into the country and to the electorate, right? Trump's got Van Jones crying on TV about how he did this great criminal justice thing and Biden <laughs> wrote the crime bill. Who am I voting for, right? Like, and, and so I understand why not, irrational person might come to that set of things. Again, I don't think this is a remarkably st statistically significant number. When you've got a group of people that more than 80% of them support one thing, that's as close to unity across a group as exists in our politics, right? There's no other group that, uh, you know, meanwhile, me meanwhile, you've got uh, Latino turnout numbers, turnout, turnout numbers among uh, South, South Americans, Cubans that were far more in favor of the president uh, than turnout numbers, I think, even among Jewish Americans that were far more favorable for the president than black men, right? And many of those, some of those populations, not all of those populations, are, are larger populations than black men. 
I think one of the other things that's important to talk about in this moment about black voters in general was not just the percentages. I think sometimes percentages can be misleading, but the actual turnout. When you look at places like Charlotte-Mecklenburg County, when you look at Philadelphia, when you look at Cleveland and Columbus, Cuyahoga and Franklin County in Ohio, black people showed up in this election as if Obama was on the ballot in many ways. That they were, they were closer to 2012 turnout than they were to 2016 turnout. And that's as much of it as anything that if black people show up, that is good for the Democrats because they're winning eight and 10, because it's the most consistent. You, you pick 10 black people off the street and, and, and Joe Biden is getting eight of those votes. And you accept that you literally just picked 10 people off the street. One of these guys thinks the moon landing didn't happen. So fine, he voted whatever way, right? But eight and 10, you can't do that with white people. You can't do that with Hispanic people. You can't do that with women writ large, right? It only works for black people. And so, I, well, I think it's important. I mean, obviously, we're all black journalists. We're in these conversations. They're important conversations, kind of intra-community to have. And also, you know, if, if we're ranking groups of people, <laughs> black men did as well as anyone as it relates to supporting the candidate who clearly uh, was not openly racist. Did did yeah. better than most, except for black women. Listen, so. no, exactly. It was they, they got if black women got an A plus, they got an A minus, right? Yeah. And so we're so. <laughs> you know, I mean, look, which, I would make makes- I would make a couple of points on this. I mean, I think one, you know, you did see to to Wes's point, like you saw President Trump hammering in this campaign two things: mm. I, black unemployment, right? So jobs, and I address criminal justice. Right now, whether you believe that's real or not, like that was the message. He 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 is you know an effective messenger, and and you know you saw him at the Republican convention with a parade of black men who were making the case for him and saying that he wasn't racist on stage, which you know is always kind of an indicator. But um, you know that, that happens, right? That is resonating with us. Where's my African American? No, he had African Americans plural on that on that stage during the convention, but they were mostly men, right? Men and Alice Johnson. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that resonated with, um, you know, a certain number of, of black men in this country for whom maybe the president put money in their pocket, for whom maybe they watch 15 seasons of The Apprentice and, th- and associate him with wealth and success and are hoping that he can do the same in their lives. Right. Um, you know, and I think the other part of this that we have to talk about, too, uh, and this is also something that, that Wes was kind of getting at, but something, you know, a point that I have, have made a lot. Black people don't get to be swing voters. Right. For white people, voting is a choice. And for us, it's a responsibility. It's a burden. Right. Like you had people like John Lewis invoking uh, the Edmund Pettus Bridge and saying you have to do this. And if you don't, you're letting down the race and or your community and or America. Right. If you do not show up. White people, you know, this is not existential for them. They do not see uh, elections in in, in this democracy and those kinds of stakes. It's probably going to work out for them either way, or at least that's the way that they feel. Right. And so they uh, are allowed to to make a different choice. I mean, this is, again, the centennial year of suffrage, which I have to bring up because I work for a newsroom name for that, but also like acknowledging that, that the 19th Amendment came at the expense of, of black and brown women. And in the hundred years since white women have had the vote, what have they used it for? Like mostly to maintain systems of oppression, right? We've had the vote for half as long. And what did black women do? Use it to try to help improve democracy for everyone. So yeah. like, that the realization that there's strength in numbers, uh, I think that was a narrative of this election. What are white women going to do? And we saw what they did. They doubled down on Trump, voted yeah. even more for President Trump, even even with everything that, that we have known about, um, 
you know, this administration and its policies uh, in terms of gender and, and, and uh, you know, his engagement with suburban women down the stretch. I think it's easy to forget that prior to his um, entry into politics, Trump was like a kind of like a hip hop star. Like he would get his name dropped in rap songs. He was, he was, he was a symbol yeah, of money and success and kind of being this whole cool New York culture. Um, I want to talk about the fact that now he is, uh, you know, about to be evicted. He is has launched this legal battle. You know, you have Mitch McConnell talking about this legal votes, legal votes, legal votes. You hear a lot of Republicans talking about these legal votes. Let's be very, very clear. The evidence of illegal votes is non-existent. There were not illegal votes cast to the scale that would change the results of a single election. And if it did, it would change the results of congressional races too. Well, well of course they y- know that. Yes, of course. I mean, like, like, yes, like how, how, how Democrats rigged the election and, and Mitch McConnell uh, was not on the chopping right. block. Why did we do so poorly? <laughs> how is this going to end? Because I don't see Trump conceding defeat ever. I mean, I think that, um, you know, in the same way that he tried to illegitimize Barack Obama's presidency, you probably are going to see him try to illegitimize Joe Biden's presidency. He will continue to find platforms to speak to uh, his supporters uh, because he was the second highest vote getter in the history of this country, even in losing. Right. The only person that has ever gotten more votes than him in the history of this country is Joe Biden. Yeah, you know, I I've been saying this for a minute. I don't think Trump's going anywhere. Right. Not that I don't think he's going to leave the White House. I mean, I, I agree with Aaron. I don't think he's going to concede. But I think ultimately in January, we'll see a transfer of power. I think Donald Trump's the candidate four years from now. Stop it, Wes. Don't say that. He's the most popular Republican in the country. He is he. I mean, if Barack Obama had lost to Mitt Romney, certainly would have been all types of people clamoring for him to run again in 16. Uh, At the the end of the day, as long as you have a former elected president out there in the world with a a fan base that is rabid, right, millions of people, people aren't beating down the doors to see Ted Cruz, right, or Lindsey Graham or whomever else is going to, Nikki Haley, not anything against any of these people, right? Donald Trump has been elected but with tens of millions of votes and and has been the president, that he has to be the presumptive favorite. He is the functional leader of the Republican Party. And there are figures within Congress and within the leadership, people he's installed across the country who are his people, right, who are running in. And, and so, I, like I said, I, I think that we can sometimes be, it could, I could be wrong, right? I could be completely wrong on it. And I'll eat that if I am. But I think it's a mistake to assume that Donald Trump is gone, right? That it's not, that he might give his own State of the Union addresses. He might, like, he's the former president of the United States. We still got to send a Secret Service with his kids on all their foreign trips because if they get kidnapped, we got to do something about it, right? And so I think. Do we? We do. There's like a national security issue, right? We, we got to send someone with, with Eric when he's going deer hunt, you know, rhino hunting in Africa. And that's, and, and Y'all giving Eric a gun, though? <laughs> and, I just, and so I say all that to say, I just think, you know, the reality is once someone's become pre- Donald Trump's not going to be Jimmy Carter. He's not Or any president after he has left office who lays low and, you know, lets his successor... Uh, govern. But what you just said, Wes, sounds to me like the only way to convince him to leave, which is let's start planning your comeback. 
that this was illegitimate? I think, I think it was actually it was someone reported that that's been some of the conversations they've been having with him internally, even to get him to accept the results of this election. All right, let's start talking 2024. What are we going to do? How are we going to do it? We know there's a massive conservative media apparatus that is going to be helpful to him in that. He wanted to host a show on Fox News. You know they're giving it to him. Of course. Right? The reality is he's going to, four years from now, Donald Trump is living, he is going to have a massive platform to speak to millions of people whenever he wants and is still going to be the former president of the United States. Mm. Well, on that note, um, Aaron, thank you for being here. You know, thanks for having me. This is some run tell this trivia. Erin was supposed to be our, our number four, our permanent number four, um, but she has so many irons in the fire and she's such a superstar that it didn't work out now. You hear, I'm holding out hope for the future. Uh, the stars did not align at this moment, but we are so happy to have you here. You know, we love you. I love all of you and we go back way too far and it's been way too long and I wish this was in person with our beverages of choice. Well, soon, soon. soon, soon. enough. 2021, Juneteenth. I'm calling mm. it. I'm Come calling on, vaccine. I'm holding you to that. I'm calling it. All right, that's, guys. That's a thing now. That's a thing. We're going we gonna to make it a thing. Hey, don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a five-star review. And the conversation continues on social media. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at runtellthis underscore. Check out new episodes every Wednesday. Runtell This is an independent production of Mara Scampo, Inc.